Hello everyone, this is Kellen Cabanero. Welcome to another episode of Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. It is my job here to interview world-class scientists, to broadly communicate the cutting-edge work going on in their laboratories, and to get to know the people behind the science. Today, our guest is Dr. Mitchell Cronenberg. Mitch completed his bachelor's at Columbia and his PhD in postdoc in the lab of Leroy Hood at Caltech. He then joined UCLA as a faculty member and later as a full professor. In 2003, he moved to San Diego and joined the La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology as not just a professor, but also as the president and chief scientific officer. He is also an adjunct professor at UC San Diego and the co-director of a collaborative effort between the La Jolla Institute and UC San Diego called the Program in Immunology. I could go on and on about Mitch's credentials and accomplishments, so for the sake of time, I'll just refer you to his Wikipedia page. In this conversation, Mitch and I talk about unconventional T-cells, autoimmunity, and the future of immunology. We also dig into Mitch's philosophies related to science, mentorship, and life. You can find links to Mitch's Wikipedia page, the Cronenberg Lab website, and references to the papers we discuss in the show notes. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mitch Cronenberg. Mitch, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I think what you do is uh, very important. I'm selfish, and I just told you before we started recording that I want to eventually start my own lab, so I'm going to ask you questions that, that really are important for me, and hopefully in doing that, they will help other people as well. So in doing my research for this conversation, I noticed that you did a postdoc in the same lab that you were a graduate student in. Could you tell me why you chose to stay in the same lab? Yeah. That is, first of all, that's almost always a mistake. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, but I guess I managed to survive. I really liked being where I was. And, and the work was, at the time, was very exciting. And so I decided to stay on. I had been a graduate student for an inordinately long time. I worked in a very large laboratory with very little supervision. And so for many years, I, I kind of wandered around from project to project and accomplished relatively little. Although I would say, even a couple of years before I defended, I had first author papers and I could have gotten my PhD. So by the time I became a postdoc, and I was uh, a postdoc for a fairly short time by today's standards, three years, I knew everything. Um, there were a lot of resources. I was at Cal California Institute of Technology, or Caltech. I was in the laboratory of Dr. Leroy Hood, and he's a very renowned person, still active, uh, a member of all three national academies, so science, medicine, and engineering, Lasker Award winner, et cetera. I, I, if I detailed all his awards, if I knew them, it would take the whole interview. So it was a fun place to be because it was, he was rather hands-off, and uh, I liked that. And so I stayed on. And that launched me into uh, uh, my first independent job at UCLA. Uh, you know, life is complex. 
So I did have opportunities to go to other places. And I stayed in Pasadena in Los Angeles, in part because of a relationship I had uh, with, with a, a, a young woman. And that relationship didn't work out. <laughs> but um, that was part of the reason, I think, why I, I stayed in the early, uh, this was the early 1980s. So it was a few years ago. So you said you did a rather long graduate That's right. uh, education. How long? It was uh, about eight years. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah. And, and, I, and it's interesting. You know, it's kind of, we had so little oversight. And, and actually, in my small class of students, I wasn't the slowest. So it was kind of a Caltech thing, in a way, to do that. Like I said, I had, you know, years before I defended, I had a first author paper in the Journal of Experimental Medicine. It's a fairly high-impact journal, and a second author paper, and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I could have, I could have defended. <laughs> why, why do you say it's a mistake to stay? Um, Clearly worked out for you. Yeah, well, statistically, it's a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. There, are, there are exceptions to every rule we could make about this kind of career. It's important to go to different places and get new perspectives and also to make human connections. Nobody can read every paper, but if people know you a bit and interact with you, it, it, it improves your network. Mm-hmm. In a sense, that's why it's important to go to meetings and give talks, even short talks, which is more typical if you're an advanced graduate student or a postdoc. People see you, then they'll go back. If they like the work, they might go back and read the paper. They know who you are, and, and that kind of thing can be important. So strategically, it's best to expand your network, expand your intellectual perspective, probably more important, and, and to go to a different place. I would, I would strongly recommend that. It's easy to stay in the same place. And in a way, I took, I took the easier path. Mm-hmm. When I think of your work, first thing that comes to mind is unconventional T-cells. <laughs> right. Was that the work you started as a graduate student and continued as a postdoc and then brought with you to your first professorship? No, it was something I pretty much started once I went to UCLA. And I, I became interested in uh, gamma delta T-cells at the time. And I also became interested in non-polymorphic antigen-presenting molecules. And it fascinated me that the same protein fold, the same kind of protein, could be highly conserved in one member of the family and in others be among the most polymorphic genes in the human genome. So to give you a concrete example, there are genes called HLA, A, B, and C that determine our tissue type. And there are literally thousands of alleles or forms in the human population. There's another antigen-presenting molecule, uh, another tissue-type molecule, if you will, called MR1. And, and all these molecules, what they do, I, sh- I should back up, all, what they do is they pick up molecular fragments and bring them to the surface of the cell so T-cells can look at them, sniff around, if you will, and decide, should I respond or not? Well, MR1 is almost non-polymorphic. In other words, we all have the same MR1. And in fact, even if we compare humans and rodents, 
So tens of millions of years of evolution, MR1 has hardly changed. But it's related to the tissue type molecules, has the same molecular fold, has the same broad type of function. It binds things inside a cell, brings them to the surface, so T cells can look and see what's going on, basically. So for the tissue type molecules, there are probably around five or 6,000 alternative forms in the global human population. Mm. And these other molecules are very, very highly conserved. And I, I really wanted to understand their function. But I also thought that if we were ever to have a immune therapy based on T cells, it would be good to exploit a kind of T cell and molecules that are not subject to this highly variable degree of polymorphism, in other words, many forms. In other words, my T cells that see stuff that's bound to or presented by MR1 are the same as yours and could work in you and could actually work in a mouse. While my flu-reactive T cells, because they're using my own tissue-type molecules to bind flu peptides, my flu-reactive T cells wouldn't work in you, Kellen, wouldn't work in another person. All they might do is cause a graft reaction. Mm -hmm. And so that, that conservation creates a, a potential therapeutic window. And, and that was always in the back of my mind, but in the forefront was just the intellectual curiosity about why are these proteins related to the others, but not evolving quickly, not under the same evolutionary selection pressure. Mm -hmm. So it was more the antigen presentation that drew your interest rather than the actual T-cell itself. That's right. That's right. In fact, one of the T-cells that we worked on it's called the thymus leukemia antigen because it was discovered on thymus-derived uh, leukemias in mice. This protein we showed is actually highly expressed in the epithelial cells of the intestine. It's expressed on other cell types as well, but it's highly expressed there. And that helped get me involved in another branch of our work, mucosal immunology, inflammatory bowel disease, and other kinds uh, of issues related to that turns out that this protein doesn't really present anything, okay? So its structure is such that it doesn't need to be binding to a molecular fragment in order to get to the cell surface. But it does interact with another protein on T cells called CD8, a very important protein that marks many cytotoxic T cells, for example, and has very, very interesting immune effects. So even though we started with antigen presentation, one of the molecules that we worked on turns out not to be a classical antigen-presenting molecule at all. But that's, that's what happens. It, you know, evolution can create multiple functions for a single protein or a protein that may have had primordially one function can evolve to have a different function and so on. Mm -hmm. What happens when you remove some of these proteins from a mouse, for example? Like, what, what kind of diseases may these mice be susceptible to, or yeah. um, does this inhibit development of autoimmunity? Right. So there's another one. I mentioned the name of one molecule called MR1. There's another one called CD1. <laughs> the names are forgettable, but uh, more work has been done on CD1. And CD1 does seem to be involved in a variety of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, there's controversies in the literature. I would say there are some cases in which 
CD1 reactive T cells are protective for, for autoimmune disease. We actually worked with a professor at UCSD, Nunzio Bottini, and worked in an arthritis model. And the CD1 reactive cells were protective in the particular arthritis model that we studied. So they're going to damp down yeah, they, the inflammation. They did. They damped down the inflammation. And what is being presented by the CD1D to tell the which T cell is it that's responding to CD1D? Is it's it, called an NK T cell or the, natural killer T cell. The NK yeah. T cell. So yeah. what's what is uh, the antigen presenting cell showing the, the NK T cell to turn down the inflammation in, in yeah. basically arthritis yeah. models? Well, CD1 presents not peptides, small uh, protein fragments, which most T cells in our bodies respond to. It presents glycolipids. And in some cases, we don't know which glycolipids are involved, but we use genetic means. So we said two identical mice, except one has NKT cells, one doesn't, or we transfer NKT cells into the mouse that doesn't have them, kind of like Cox postulates, if you will. Mm -hmm. We did a number of things to show the NKT cells are protected. We also use synthetic glycolipid antigens that we could add to activate NKT cells. That was also protective. But there are in what we call endogenous glycolipids that activate these cells, and we don't know a lot about them, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow these cells are getting activated in this arthritis model and protecting the mice. How do they, how do they protect the mice, the, the NKT cells, once they're... You know, it wasn't entirely clear, but what was clear is that their ability to produce gamma interferon was part of the protective mechanism. And normally we think of gamma interferon uh, it's a cytokine, it's a chemical, a protein messenger that cells make. And its function really is to stimulate other kinds of immune responses, particularly against intracellular bacteria and viruses. But we also think of it as being inflammatory. So too much gamma interferon in some cases can exacerbate autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. And there's evidence in a variety of cases. But in, in the arthritis model that we studied, a different cytokine seems to be prevalent. It's called IL-17. And IL-17 actually is very useful for fighting extracellular bacteria. So there are bacteria that live outside of your cells, like strep pneumonia, causes pneumonia, kills a lot of people, and bacteria that go inside your cell, like mycobacterium tuberculosis, causes tuberculosis and kills, a lot, kills many more people probably than strep pneumonia. And for whatever reason, the arthritis model we studied was very IL-17 driven. And we know that there are connections between IL-17 and human arthritis as well. The gamma interferon response seemed to suppress the IL-17 response. And we're not entirely sure how that worked, but it, it's a different pathway, different cytokines. And in a way, these, these pathways sometimes uh, counter-regulate one another. Your body has to know what to do when it has a pathogen, right? And you think of these, all these cytokines and all these responses, they're designed to protect us from pathogens primarily. So we have a type of immune response, which we immunologists call a TH2 response. And there's certain cytokines that go with that, IL-4, IL-13, again, the names don't matter. What that response is about is to get rid of parasitic worms, hookworms, whipworms, things like that. These are large extracellular organisms. How do you get rid of them? The way you get rid of them is by weeping and sweeping. 
<laughs> and what that means, you're familiar with this, Kellen, I know. Uh, and what that means is you, you have tears, you have contractions in your intestine, and you might have diarrhea even. You, you have uh, coughing and you secrete mucus to try. You're trying to expel the organism rather than, you know, kill the, it's not an intracellular organism. So you can't kill the cell that's infected. You're trying to sweep it out. So that's one kind of response the so-called TH2, and then there's the gamma interferon response and the IL-17 response. Gamma interferon, viruses, and intracellular bacteria. And then the IL-17 would be predominantly for extracellular bacteria. So these flavors of immunity, T-cell immunity predominantly, although not exclusively, they counter-regulate one another in different ways. Mm -hmm. To summarize, we have three branches of, or types of immunity. Right. And they all inhibit each other. So in a sense, an inflammatory response can actually be an anti-inflammatory response depending on the context, right? So right. if you have, you know, like you're saying in arthritis, you have really strong type 17. Mm -hmm. Then if you add a little bit of type one in there, it can suppress the type 17. Yeah. And yeah. more normalize things. Right. But we don't know how. Right. Yeah, if you can redirect appropriately the immune response in some cases it may be better to just shut it off right but redirecting uh, potentially could work how well it works in people it's not so clear most of what we do now is trying to suppress the immune response mm -hmm. rather than redirect it mm -hmm. but but that's not that's not the only thing we do for example the classic allergy immune therapy in other words you have an allergy and they give you these shots, right? They give you shots over low doses over a long time. Very classic thing. Mm -hmm. It can be effective, not in everyone. You're really redirecting the immune response in a way, maybe either to another type of inflammation or perhaps more towards regulation. But it's not just the kind of you know, full-on Im immune suppression that we normally do in these cases. Mm -hmm. Going back to these invariant, antigen presenting molecules yeah. you said we all have them pretty right. much the same ones right? right but not all of us have arthritis right how do you explain that yeah well the short answer is i i don't think i can explain it simply <laughs> <laughs> look the uh, autoimmune diseases are multifactorial they are complex they have a strong genetic basis but in most cases, they're not single gene hits. In other words, I have a mutation in gene A, I'm going to get severe asthma. That's not how it works. It's usually variants, in fact, can be normal variants that are fairly high frequency in a variety of genes working together. Then you have all the environmental and lifestyle issues that come into play that can modulate whether you're susceptible to autoimmunity or not. And all of that, all course also will tie into the microbiome, which is, I know, something that, that you and everyone really has been interested in. So there isn't a single explanation. Whether you can therapeutically manipulate these populations to do something to treat inflammation, for example, that, that's the, the issue. But I have to tell you that most of the clinical development has not been focused on autoimmunity for invariant NKT cells or for gamma delta cells or another population called mate cells, M-A-I-T. 
most of the therapeutic effort has been in the cancer area. Some of that is practical. It's much easier to get trials off the ground. Uh, some of it is the nature of the unmet need for some of these diseases and so on. doesn't mean that there won't be applications in autoimmunity in the future. Yeah, I think this cell therapy is a, is a very exciting avenue. And I've seen some studies recently using CAR T cells in MS models, right? Or oh. MS patients even, right? Yeah, yeah. To deplete these aberrant B cells that are yeah. uh, making you know, these destructive antibodies. So you said it's, it's, is it still not gaining traction or is it starting to pick up? No, I, th I think it is starting to pick up in terms of engineering cells for autoimmunity. Autoimmunity is just, it's really difficult. <laughs> that doesn't mean, <laughs> that means it's an area of need. That means we should be, we should be concerned with it and we should be focused on it more. But yeah, the autoimmune diseases are just, um, they're just difficult. And there are so many practical things to think about. For example, let's say you want to do a trial in, in type 1 diabetes, right? Well, first of all, we, we have a treatment, right? It's not a great treatment, but you can, you can take insulin and you can control it. And then once the beta cells are destroyed, you know, then you have to think of a different kind of treatment, right? because you've, you've already lost the organ. So you could transplant beta cells, but it's known they'll be rejected again. But it's very hard to get a clinical trial off the ground in a, in a disease like that, where uh, the individuals who still have beta cell function usually are younger. Uh, there is a treatment, and yeah, it, it just creates problems. But we need to, we need to do more. Mm -hmm. You were telling me when you, know, you started your job at UCLA, you were very interested in these antigen presentation molecules. What are you most interested in today, now? Yeah. What's the science that you stay up at night reading? Uh, we are still interested in the in invariant T-cells, but the tools are so much better now for characterizing, surveying the immune response that I'm more interested in taking a broader view. So one of the things we've done with a collaborator here is to try to understand what kinds of T cells are present in the intestine of ulcerative colitis disease patients. And we and other people have done this as well as us. So we've done single cell RNA sequencing, very common technique on the T cells of ulcerative colitis patients to look at what kinds of T cells are there. And we've, we've made some interesting findings. I, I can't uh, go into every detail. But then we've, we've found particular pathways that weren't necessarily expected. And then what we're doing is we go to a mouse model and we, we try to manipulate the same pathways genetically to see if there's a correspondence and we can get deeper insight into how that pathway or how those genes work. And it's very interesting because in, in one case that we've been pursuing, it's a gene that affects metabolism. The mouse and the human are just not concordant at all. Mm -hmm. So mice deficient for this gene, it's called LACC1, but the, 
doesn't matter. And it affects various aspects of metabolism, which is how the cell uses fats and, and uh, carbohydrates and, and, and amino acids to make the building blocks it needs. And we know that this gene in human cells affects, affects the metabolism of the T cells and affects their function. And in mice, it seems to have very little effect. And it's expressed at lower levels too. And then we have another system in which the mouse and the human are completely concordant. And then that gives us the ability to look at genetic knockouts for that gene in mice and ask what happens and then try to follow. In that case, it's a transcription factor called BCL6. Again, the names are everything. <laughs> All 20,000 genes have at least one name, right? Uh, and then we can go down the tree and sort of get, well, how does this affect inflammation in the intestine and does it affect other kinds of inflammation and so on. So I'm really excited about that. In a way, that new, newer focus, to me, it's, it, it's more obviously connected to, to human disease. And I'm still deeply, deeply interested in the unconventional uh, or invariant T cells that we've studied before. But I, I think a lot of the really exciting things are the, the people developing the clinical applications. So there are groups that are using NKT cells as the platform or the recipient for chimeric antigen receptors. Mm. Uh, why not use regular T cells? Because NKT cells will not cause graft versus host disease. They see CD1D or CD1, whatever, and my CD1 is the same as yours and everyone else's. So conventional CD4 and CD8 T cells will have the potential to cause serious cytokine release syndrome or graft versus host reactions or so on. These cells won't do that. And they like to go to tissues and they're inherently effector type cells. In other words, they're ready to make cytokines and even kill to some extent. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really one of the more interesting things to do at this point after 20 something years of NKT cell research and we know a lot we don't know everything, of course. And I've, I've decided in my own career to focus on more the discovery stage. So, so moving eventually towards other things is really where I'd like to go. Mm -hmm. Maybe step back a second and talk about these cell therapies. Mm -hmm. So my understanding, and I'm not a T-cell biologist, so CAR T-cell is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell. Yeah. What this is, is taking out someone's cells, someone's T cells, and then engineering them, which essentially what they're doing there is adding an antibody to the surface of that T cell, right? And I think most commonly they've used a CD19 antibody, correct? Right. And so that, right. that T cell then can be put back into the, the individual, right. say with a B cell related cancer, right? That expresses that CD19 and those T cells will that antibody that's on the surface of that T cell will recognize that, that tumor and in a very cool fashion will induce intracellular uh, signaling cascade that leads to killing of the cancer cell. Right. That's right. So if I understand correctly with the NKT cells, they're recognizing these glycolipids that are going to be the same in everyone. Do you even need to engineer them? Or, or can, you just, can you just grow them up and then put them back in, like just give someone a lot of this uh, immunosuppressive uh, cell therapy. Yeah. Well, that's been, that's been tried, <laughs> but it's been tried in the context of cancer. 
And you, why would someone do that? Well, in, in other experimental contexts, NKT cells were anti-cancer. Okay. And maybe gamma interferon is related to that, like it would seem to be related in the arthritis model that we studied. Gamma interferon was good, or some gamma interferon was good. And, and just expanding the NKT cells and giving them back wasn't very effective. Okay, that, so that, that has been tried. Yeah, you, you ex explained it very well. You take the recognition unit of an antibody and you stitch that to some things that go through the cell membrane into the T cell that tell the T cell to get activated, right? Because B cells and T cells are related, but they have different, you know, different signals get transmitted into the cell. So that's the, the chimera. It's a, it's a combination of two things. The antibody is the B cell part, and then the part through the membrane and into the cytoplasm inside the cell is all T cell stuff. You know, so the T cell knows, oh, I got a signal. It doesn't know, T cells don't know anything, I guess, but it, it doesn't matter that it's an antibody that's doing the recognition versus a normal T cell recognition unit or T cell receptor. Yeah, and you can do that. You can even do it with T cell receptors, right? You can take a bunch of T cells and tell them, here, I'll give you a T cell receptor that'll recognize something of interest. But usually it's done with antibodies in most cases. There are two ways to do this. One is autologous, meaning self. That means each person, you have to take their T cells and engineer them so that they now have chimeric receptors and can attack their B cell tumor, for example. And that's been approved by the FDA for a number of uh, so-called liquid or hematologic tumors, in other words, leukemias. And it, it, it does work for a period. There, there are often relapses, but it's, it can be very effective. It's just very expensive if you think about it. Each medicine has to be made for that individual person. And personalized the medicine. Personalized <laughs> medicine, exactly. And the reason is to, to avoid as much as possible cytokine release syndrome and, and then later graft-versus-host disease. In other words, out-of-control immune responses. And by the way, this can be so effective. Let's say you're trying to fight a B-cell tumor. Uh, you mentioned CD19, which is, was the pioneer in this. You can wipe out all the person's B-cells, but you can live for a while without B-cells. So that's, but that's how effective it is. People interested in this kind of cell therapy are trying to develop off-the-shelf therapies. In other words, I make a big batch of cells and I put chimeric antigen receptors into them and then I can, I can give them to 100 people or to 50 people or whatever. And that's, that's really what people are trying to do. And there, the problem of graft rejection, and it's mutual. The T cells that you put in, even though they have a chimeric receptor, they also have their original receptor, unless you engineer it out, right. which, which people are thinking about. But unless you engineer it out, which again makes the manufacture more complicated, but may be the way to go, those T cells will, will cause a graft rejection. In other words, they'll cause a response. But the problem with the off-the-shelf is that the host, the host will respond to the foreign T cells. So no, no one has close to solving that, in my opinion. So for now, Approved cell therapies are mostly autologous. They're personalized, and they're very, very expensive. They're hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. I agree. That sounds like a really exciting front for immunology and, and clinical medicine. In terms of the basic science, 
you mentioned how you're excited about kind of looking at the same problem, but using a new lens with this technology yeah. of, of single cell RNA sequencing. And you said it, it still is, I think, pretty cutting edge, only a couple couple years really, right? Sure. But it is very commonplace now and maybe a little boring. I'm curious, what, what, do you, what do you see on the horizon in terms of technology that you know, is going to be in the future allowing you to get new insights on old questions? Yeah, that's, that's, a very, that's really an important question. Imaging technologies are developing as rapidly as sequencing technologies. And now people are marrying, if you will, the imaging and the sequencing technologies. So the latest very cutting edge thing is uh, spatial transcriptomics. So in other words, instead of taking a suspension of cells and making droplets out of them and looking at the sequences one cell at a time, what if you could look in a pathogenic site and look at each cell in that pathogenic site, in a tumor, for example, and look at each cell and look at its transcriptome and see what it's doing? Or other kinds of imaging technologies, maybe where you could look in that site and, and image which cells are being activated at a particular moment, things of that sort. But coming back to this, this marriage would be the spatial transcriptomics. This is rapidly developing. So there are systems and there are instruments. And then a year later, there's a better instrument with better resolution. And the old instrument <laughs> is not so important anymore and, and so on. So that's, that's, um, that's an obvious answer in a way, because we know that that's the next wave. It's, it's already here. It's just still at the early stage. What's beyond that is, is really hard to answer. I'm not really sure. I think probably something in proteomics, you know, single cell proteomics at a level that we don't have now where you can really look at the interactomes in multiple cells. By interactomes, I mean which protein complexes and what their composition is. But I'm just guessing. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's reasonable to, to guess that, you know, as we progress, we're going to have assays that allow us to look at things in more dimensions. So that's like yeah. spatial, you know, getting the spatial dimension. Maybe eventually you can have time in yeah. that dimension. And right. then also transitioning from the maybe less relevant functional unit of RNA to the more relevant protein. So yeah. I, I noticed in your recent paper uh, the, in Science Immunology, you did some intravital microscopy. Yeah. So this is in vivo imaging watching T cells move around right. inside of a live breathing mouse, right? Yep. Maybe in the future we'll be able to do that at scale and see everything. You know, it's like that yeah. that movie that just won all the Oscars, right? Everything everywhere all at once, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, and then and then we'll have <laughs> right, to right. we'll have to figure out right. how to how to analyze all that. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I I think, you know, you raised a good point. Why can't we intravital microscopy is a very powerful technique. I mean, imagine that you could, you could swallow a miniature camera, right, that would allow you to detect cells of interest, and it would have the ability to go to, 
to an inflammatory site. Then maybe you'd start at the skin, so you just rub it on, or it's the gut, you just swallow it. You know, you get it intravenously, and it finds the inflammatory site, and it could just image cells that have a certain level of calcium flux or, or whatever. So it could. Um, it, I'm really going off the deep end here. Oh, but, we're, we're yeah. speculating. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that you could make an intravital movie of an area of interest in a person, you know, and that would be, you know, relatively painless, simple, small, you know, recording device. That would be the diagnosis of the the late 21st century. That's how that's how we'll diagnose our conditions. You you have arthritis and it's being treated through some cell therapy or something else. And then, you know, every week you swallow the camera and it, it gives you the Instead of you know filling out a form or the, having the doctor <laughs> squeeze your joint mm. or whatever, you know, uh, you get a, a real in vivo diagnosis based mm. on on data, mm-hmm. on you know, multiple you know petabytes or whatever ter- terabytes of data. Yeah, that seems possible in the in the multi-decade span. Why not? If you were going to start your career over again right now, like say you're maybe in my shoes and thinking about where to do a postdoc or what to do for a postdoc, what would you, what would you choose? Would you be interested in the technology development space? Is there a certain branch of immunology you'd like to explore? Maybe, maybe the neuro neuroscience immune interaction, a particular person, like a, an investigator that you think is doing really exciting stuff. What would you, what would you do if you had to start over? I think immunology has made terrific strides and is now acknowledged to be a real science, which you know many years ago was, there was a lot of very soft, if you will, uh, poor data. A, a real science of enormous import. That's great, but on the other hand, I don't think we know very much. For example, I don't think we know a lot about tolerance. Yeah, there's self-tolerance, clearly. And somehow the neonatal immune system is good at creating tolerance and as an adult, not as good. I don't think we know a lot about immune senescence. We know immune cells when you're older are less responsive, but immune senescence is very important in in an aging population. So earlier I, I, I kind of intimated that autoimmunity was a difficult problem, autoimmunity and inflammation a big problem. We don't have a lot of deep understanding of it, frankly. And underneath that is the question of tolerance. Yeah, okay, T-Rex, T-Rex are good. If you don't have T-Rex, you die. Yeah, we acknowledge that. But tolerance isn't just T-Rex, right? And there's, there's other mechanisms and other things going on, not really well understood. And so there are just fundamental areas of immunology that are not well explored. So I don't know if it would be neuronal immune interactions or other kinds of, of things. Uh, you know, studies of the tumor microenvironment are very active now, of course, and very important. I'm not sure it would be necessarily be a particular area. I got involved in mucosal immunology. Uh, not many people were interested in it years ago because I thought it was understudied, and it's not understudied anymore it's well well investigated but it's not it's not well that well understood in my opinion also because many 
many pathogens enter through various uh, surfaces, barrier immunity, we might call it, rather than mucosal uh, immunity. And that includes skin, lung, reproductive tract, digestive tract, of course. I got focused on digestive tract because of the expression of these invariant or non-polymorphic antigen-presenting molecules, the MR1s and the CD1s. So I think technically, computation is very important. And when we talked about technologies, we didn't really touch much on computation. But as we generate more and more data, computation is going to be more and more important. And, uh, you know, the alpha folds and the other methods for predicting structures are going to be more important and other kinds of ways of modeling immunity. And I think being an experimentalist is great. And if I had to start over, I'd still want to do experiments. But I would get a a deep knowledge of, of, uh, of computational methods, programming, things like that. I, I think that's, that's a, an incredibly important set of tools to have. Just like, you know, if you're a biochemist, you need to understand chemical structures and all biologists need to know what an amino acid is and how it's different from a lipid and so on. I think that computation is now such a fundamental tool that it's, it's essential. The other advice I would give would be, again, not a particular area, would be to do something that's I would say disease-oriented, not necessarily, translational is kind of a vague term. In a way, all of immunology is disease-oriented or translational, but there are aspects that are truly you know, more at the fundamental end. And I think for a long-term career, the investment that society is making in research at the National Institute of Health is gonna be somewhat translational. And you have to follow your passion if your passion is to understand the molecular details of VDJ recombination, go for it, man. Because, <laughs> right? You're going to work. You know, they 70, can have that one. <laughs> right, okay. But for some, you know, you're going to work 70 or 60 or whatever hours a week on, on a project. You have to have the passion, of course. But if you're just thinking, well, I'm interested in everything. You know, uh, I think VDJ recombination is interesting. But I also think, you know, how chronic inflammation in the joint works is interesting. I think... If, if that's a 50-50, I think I would go for the more disease-oriented part of it. But I do want to stress that until we have a better fundamental understanding of issues like immune tolerance, we're not going to make the progress we want in understanding chronic inflammation and autoimmunity. Just to really get specific here, if you were a grad student about to be a postdoc and you were you know, interested in all these things, who who would you have your eyes on? Who's who's doing that work that you think is like anyone you see talk at meetings that you're like, wow, I would love to go back in time and look uh-huh. in their lab. Uh-huh. Is there anyone like that? You know that that is that's a good question. There are people who are who are studying the interactions of the microbiome with the immune system, which we really haven't gotten, even despite all our interest in barrier immunity. We haven't done that. And there are, there are many, many people doing that kind of work that it might be fun to, to work with them. Uh, you know, Yasmin Belkade and Dan Lippman and, and people like that. That would be a natural thing for me to do if I were to go back. You know, it would, it would extend some of the things we're doing now or have done, but it would be also taking a deeper 
deeper look at the effects of the microbiome. There are many, many other labs as well. I think Wendy Garrett is doing some very interesting things and many others, really. We have a few more minutes. I have a few more questions. <coughs> we can go more sure. quickly through these. Yeah. Some kind of maybe more personal things, just to kind of get, get an idea, like, mm -hmm. who is Mitch? So being a scientist is, is difficult. There's lots of failures. And I'm wondering, what do you do for yourself when you get stuck? How do you, how do you get yourself you know, moving forward in a positive direction when you've hit a hard roadblock? At work, uh, one thing I've always done is had different projects. And in fact, we've always had this kind of T-cell area, which was focused to a great extent on these, we sometimes call them innate-like T-cells or non-conventional T-cells. So we had the T-cell work, but we also had uh, mucosal immunology projects, and not just the ones I described to you now, but looking deeply at cytokines of different kinds, IL-10 is one, or co-stimulatory molecules of the TNF family. So we've had like the science immunology paper you mentioned very briefly. So having different projects <laughs> you know, uh, allows you to, usually something that's working, let me put it that way. So it, the criticism would be that you're not focused enough or you're a bit of a dilettante and, and that may be that may be valid. But for me, that's how I always had the lab from the earliest days. I always had several projects. I hope not too many, but several projects. And usually there was something that was giving you that, that adrenaline rush of cool data, you know, which is what you, know, what you live for as an experimental scientist. You know, psychologically, I find that uh, exercise is really important. Me so, too, me too. That's my, yeah. that's my answer to that question. Yeah. I don't get an, enough I'd like to do something every day, but what do you uh, like? What do you like to do for exercise? Well, I jog, and I still jog, and and I also I have a weight set in my garage, so I don't like to go to a gym. I did have for years. I had gym mem membership, particularly back when I was at Caltech. But even after that, um, you know that's nice. But I just like to be on my own. I actually listen to podcasts. <laughs> Maybe I'll inflammatory content. Yeah, I'll, I'll, that'd be <laughs> the next one. You know, I have to get away from fresh air. You know, <laughs> Terry Gross. But I listen to podcasts, and, and I'm in my garage. You know, sometimes the door is open. I can see neighbors. Okay, but you know, I just do my own thing, and I do that more than the jogging, frankly. And sometimes, uh, you know, my wife and I will will even if I haven't had any steps that day or anything, we'll do kind of a a rapid walk at, at night. We live in a hilly area and, you, you know, it's kind of weird. It, we live in Del Mar, just near, which is near UC, UC San Diego. It's a rough neighborhood, right? Yeah, rough neighborhood. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's like, it's like a ghost town. If you're out at 10 o'clock at night walking around, you don't even see cars. You know, it's yeah. kind of All you see is the big screen TVs. Of and you the hear people. the waves, right? It's, and you can it's hear terrible. them. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's terrible, right? So, so moving around, gets you over the, oh, my grant just got rejected. Oh, you know, we sent the paper back for re-review and there's still six pages of comments or, or whatever. Uh, that, that just clears your mind and it just, it just, it helps enormously. We talked a little bit about good advice. Is there any bad advice that you, you hear given often to graduate students, postdocs, trainees that Maybe should be ignored. 
I don't hear a lot of bad advice. So I am on student committees. And usually the committees are not very prescriptive. In other words, they, they're trying to figure out what the student's trying to do and, and, and to be helpful. Some of the technical, very technical things I hear, I don't agree with, but that's, that's normal. And the student and the advisor you know, have, to, have to work it out. You know, like people just suggesting yeah. stuff to just suggest it. Like it's not maybe what you're thinking is the most important thing right. for that. Right. To Sometimes do. I hear advice. And I say, well, I don't think that's really the most important part of this or the the bump they really need to get over. You know, mm-hmm. Sometimes I hear that. But I have students. And I see it with my own students. We come back from the meeting and we'll go over the comments and we'll say, well, that was really a good comment. You really need to do that control or I say, eh, don't worry so much about that other comment. Yeah. And nobody can, nobody can be perfect. But there's two kinds of advice, right? There's the very technical things that might come out, and then there's the more global things right? Right? That, that people say. Most of the advice makes sense. We heard, you were there, Kellen, you and I were there, and we heard a speaker, and the advice to the students was to pick a system in which you could rapidly turn over the experiments because you are going to make mistakes. And the way he described it, 29 experiments failed, but one works and he could do that in a month so that, or whatever the, the time was. So that if you have a system and you're a graduate student, the main thing you want to do is learn how to organize and accomplish research, right? It's not, yeah, it's nice if you have a cell or nature paper, but you go on to a postdoc and that becomes much more critical. The thing you want to do is learn the craft, right? So his advice was pick a system in which you can do a lot of experiments. And I thought, yeah, that those kinds of general advice you hear are, are, are good. But then my immediate thought was, okay, well, then no graduate students will ever work on MTB because it's such a mycobacterium tuberculosis because it's such a slow infection or on uh, spontaneous models of diabetes in uh, NOD mice because it takes you know weeks and weeks for the mice to get sick. So if, if everybody followed that uh, dictum, certain fields wouldn't have any students. So it really comes down to you know what you're passionate about understanding. But nevertheless, that's really good advice. I agree. I got that advice actually when I first started working here at the La Jolla Institute yeah. from a postdoc and you know, I worked in innate immunity, which is nice to have models that are, you know, less than seven days long. So you right. can iterate through them. But I think the, and I agree, you know, you need to have people working on everything, but the sentiment of trying to make your turnaround from experiment to data acquisition quicker like you yeah. know, have you, if you can somehow do that model in, you know, five days, don't do it in ten days. You know, right. try to get it quickly and right. iterate through. Right. It's really how many how many experiments can you get done? Is like how fast you'll get your your idea of what's happening. Right. You gotta yeah. iterate. Yeah. No. There's there's advantages to that. And then another meeting that we were both at, I think I mentioned uh, Max Delbrook and the Phage School, and this is, uh, you know, in really the 1950s. These are the people who founded molecular biology. A lot of them were physicists, and they picked 
this bacteriophage system in part because, well, nothing, <laughs> relatively little was known, but also the, the iterative aspect of it and the quantitative aspect too, that, you know, you counted the plaques on the plate and you learned something about the uh, fundamental, which they did. So, uh, yeah, this, this, that's really, that is really good advice. My last question for you. Do you believe that luck or hard work and skill has contributed more to your success? Um, well, I, I hope it's not immodest, but I think some combination of hard work and skill. <laughs> yeah. I worked on topics that, you know, mostly weren't highly fashionable, at least when I went into them. And that meant at times that you had to work, you had to work hard and you had to convince people not only that you had some data, but that those, those data were important. I'm sure there have been, there have been occasions where I was, where I was lucky. I, I, can I give you a quick anecdote about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I was working on this molecule called CD1, which as I mentioned, presents lipids. In other words, binds lipids and takes them out to the cell surface. And actually, I published a paper that's wrong, or not fully correct, let's say. I'd worked with some other people, and we had made soluble CD1, and we had, we had found peptides that bound to it. And we, it's a science paper from 95 <laughs> years ago. And, and the peptides were hydrophobic. So it's not as if it's wrong. It's just that later on, a structural biologist who, who worked here at our institute showed that the peptides don't really fit totally into the CD1 group, but that's a detail. But other people working on these molecules, and these molecules are in mice and humans, found that lipids were the antigens. So I was the peptide guy, and then there was the lipid guys. And I moved from UCLA to the La Jolla Institute for Immunology, and I met some people from a company that we partner with. It's a Japanese company. And they had a lipid, and they had some evidence that it activated NKT cells. And I said to them, no, I really don't believe that. NKT cells probably recognize peptides. And they said, well, why don't you try this, uh, try this material out? And, <laughs> and we did. And sure enough, it's a very, very potent agonist stimulator of NKT cells. It's the one that's been used in s several clinical trials, principally for cancer. In a way, I was lucky because I moved here. I met these scientists from our Japanese partner company that were developing this as a cancer therapy. They've since given up on it. <laughs> uh, but by being here and getting early access to this glycolipid before other people had it, you know, we, we probably published 20 papers in a relatively short time that where we used this stuff and did various kinds of experiments. So that was a, that was a stroke of luck, certainly. But mostly I feel like now I was just putting up with the uh, the failed experiment, moving, putting your head down, moving on, maybe going out for a little jog <laughs> in between <laughs> or switching to another topic. But yeah, hard work, mostly. Very cool. We have a couple of minutes until your, your next meeting. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Sure. First of all, it was great to, to speak with you. Uh, and as I said in the very beginning, what you're doing in communicating about immunology and about research uh, to, you know, not just to the specialists is, is very important. And I, I think that kind of public service or public communication 
is really critical. I've done it in different ways. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about La Jolla Institute for Immunology. I've worked here for 25 years, and I, I, I think it's a very special place. Our close relationship with UCSD is very important to who we are, but we have such a streamlined uh, bureaucracy and such a focused mission that I just, I think it's um, terrific to be here. I was at the University of California, a different branch, UCLA, but when I came here, it was like going back to Caltech in a way, going back to a place that had a very focused science mission. And, and that's, been, that's been something. The other thing is um, I spent 18 years as the president here. So I've spent a lot of time uh, not only doing research, but giving people <laughs> advice, <laughs> recruiting faculty, trying to retain faculty, and trying to organize research. So it's, um, it's one aspect of my life that has given me a lot of pleasure and a lot of frustration. But it's a, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a little bit like the research side. You, know, you say, well, how do you keep going? And, uh, a lot of jogging. A lot, yeah, a lot of jogging, <laughs> right. No, but I mean, you know, for much of my recent career, over nearly two decades, there were these two aspects besides whatever I had going on in my personal life, my family, whatever. I had the, the leadership aspect and my own lab. And for me, having both really, uh, yeah, it was sometimes it was like drinking out of a fire hose, but it was also, that balance was, was great because there was a lot of time where I wasn't thinking about the latest experiment or why the data came out like it did, but I was trying to communicate about science to board members or to other members of the public and taking that, that other side of this kind of career where you're deeply into the, the mechanisms of something or the pathways. And at the same time, I had this other job of taking the broader perspective. And for me, that balance was helpful. I hope it was helpful for the Institute, <laughs> but it was helpful for me personally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that's a wrap. 